Now it's time to go to work. It's time to take a look at God's Word and find out what He has for us today. Now, Jason has kindly read the passage, so I'm not going to read the whole passage again. But I am going to draw your attention to a few important little points in that text. To set it up, Moses is preaching to the children of Israel, the second generation out of Egypt. And this is made all the more poignant by one little line that you can read at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. You can turn there if you want to, it's Deuteronomy 1, but if you don't want to turn there, I'm going to read it. He tells us in verse 2 and verse 3, it's 11 days' journey from Horeb, which is the mountain that Moses went up to and the people heard the voice of God from the mountain. It's 11 days' journey from that mountain, Mount Horeb, by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, which is where they camped and made ready to take the land of Canaan. 11 days. So the conquest of the promised land obedience to God, they could have had the whole thing wrapped up easily inside a month. Now listen to the next line. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. 40 years wasted. 11 days from the mountain where they heard the voice of God, the mountain that trembled and blazed with fire. 11 days from there to where they spent the rest of their 40 years while the old generation died off in the wilderness for their disobedience, for their stiff-necked and rebellious nature. 40 years they've waited for this moment. And that is what sets up Moses to preach these few final sermons. The book of Deuteronomy is just a few sermons by Moses to the people as his parting words, because he won't go with them. He's already been told that. He won't go with them. Joshua will lead them into the promised land, across the river Jordan, into Canaan, the land of milk and honey, as we fondly think of it. But Moses knows he won't be going with them, but he wants to make sure that they are completely understanding what it is that God wants of them, what it is that God desires of them when they enter the land. And so then we come to our text, Deuteronomy 4, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. The new generation, the ones who didn't rebel, the ones who were prepared to follow Moses and in turn follow God with his instructions. The biggest warning, really, I suppose, for God, from God to the people of Israel as they were going to go into Canaan was, beware of idols. Don't fall for that old trick, because the land you're going into is full of people who worship idols. 
Now, I'm not going to take any names. I'm not wanting a show of hands. But I want, I want to ask if you've ever had a conversation like this. What's wrong? You should know. No, why are you angry with me? You ought to know. What do you want me to do? Do I really have to tell you? How can I make it right? If you don't know by now, you will never work it out. That's a conversation with an idol. That's a conversation with someone who won't tell you what they want. They won't, they won't give you the information to do anything. They won't explain themselves. They won't explain their will to you. But what knocks the socks off Moses is that they serve a God and they have followed a God who is gracious enough, who is caring enough to actually step down and let them know how to behave. They're getting ready as a, a conglomeration of tribes to go into a new land, to occupy it, and to make it shine with God's reputation. That was their task. And if God was just a dumb idol, some carved rock, or a whittled piece of wood, or a silver graving, if God was just that, He would not be able to tell them how to behave, how to conduct themselves, how to carry themselves in this new land, and therefore, how to increase his reputation. And that's the center, really, of what Moses is telling them. Come with me to uh, verse 6. He's talking about the commandments, the law of Moses. And he's saying, keep these statutes and commandments and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. God's wisdom, invested into God's people, spoken into their lives and lived out in their lives, is a testimony to God's wisdom. It's a testimony to God's greatness. It's a testimony to God's superiority to all of the dumb idols you might ever stumble across. God is the God who comes near and explains Himself so that you don't have to be fumbling in the dark. You don't have to be stumbling around looking for answers about how to live His way. He explained it. What a gracious thing to do. It's not like that conversation I described a little while ago. My dad had a way of describing that sort of conversation when you just don't know how to work out what someone else wants. He said it was like a blind man in a coal cellar at night looking for a black cat that isn't there. You're just stumbling around in the dark. And with God, it's not like that. With God, He explains Himself. 
So these Israelites, they're going to a place of God's choosing. They are to show, to demonstrate a society that honors their God and lives according to the constitution that He has given them so that the guesswork is taken out. Idolatry just means guesswork. And that's why idolatry can sometimes be so seductive. Why the nations fall into it? Because really, idolatry means just imagining what your favorite rock or tree or statue might want. Guess it and try it and see if anything happens. But of course, if you can imagine for yourself what your particular idol might like, it might very well align with what you particularly like to do. See, the imagination comes in, and you start to imagine your rock or your tree or your pole, and you start to imagine what it might want of you, and you fill in the gaps, and you get away with doing whatever you want and say, my God told me I could do this. My God told me I should do this. This is pleasing to my God, but actually, I kind of enjoy it too. You see how that can work in idolatry? It's very seductive. It's a very attractive way to carry out your worship, but it's hopeless at saving you. It cannot do a thing for you. Because when push comes to shove, when it all comes down to it, you're worshiping a dumb rock or a piece of wood or a graven image. There's no point to it because it doesn't help you. Now, the classical definition of an idol is, is that which, anything which comes between you and God. Anything which clouds God out of your vision, out of your sphere, anything that pushes God to the side, you can think of that as an idol. Uh, be it sports, be it entertainment, be it whatever you choose to do that occupies your mind and your time to such an extent that you never think about God from day to day, that has become your idol. But just remember, it can't deliver you. It can't save you. It can entertain you, all well and good. And in moderation and in good measure, entertainment's okay. You have to take a break. You have to enjoy some leisure. You have to let the brain cells shut down for a little while. That's fine. But have you ever thought that amusement... The word amusement is actually a negative word. It's got an A at the beginning, which neg negates the, the rest of the word. And what's the rest of the word? Musement, musing, thinking, musing. That's why we have museums. That's where you go and contemplate, where you go and think, where you explore great ideas. And amusement is when you don't have to do that. In other words, it's it's bubblegum for your brain. That's what amusement is. It's just time-wasting, taking a break. So if you take your whole life and give it over to that, you are never going to think of the things of God because amusement shuts down your faculties. You can't live it forever, every day, in amusement. That's not a way to go. That becomes an idol. It gets in the way of how you think about God. It gets in the way of how you live out your life for God. So they're going to live in the land according to this constitution that God has given them, a series of rules and 
regulations that is called the Law of Moses. It is their national constitution for the time that they are in the land. And so for many of the Jews living in the land now, it is still their constitution. At least parts of it are their constitution. But it has to say something about their God. Behavior must represent your God accurately and winsomely. Otherwise, you're not doing it the way he commanded you. This has to be done so that God looks good. And so the constitution for the believer is kept, not just so that you're living in a just society, a righteous society, but it's the one who invented the justice and the righteousness of your society. He gets the credit. God gets the credit for when the believer lives well. So the law of Moses, as it was given to the children of Israel, was always intended to be an outward signal, an outward signal, signaling to the nations that the God of the Jews is great and wise and powerful and glorious. And that's why, that's why Moses is so excited. He bubbles over with this idea. He says in verse 7, and this is really the crux of what I have to say out of Deuteronomy, what great nation, what great people is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? The idea that God will move in close and explain himself is completely mind-boggling for Moses. And if you think about it, it should be mind-boggling for us, too. Because, you know, we sing it. There's, some so there's all sorts of songs about it. Thou, O Lord, art high above the heavens. Our God is a great big God. All of these times that we worship God and we're considering His, His transcendent majesty, the, 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 His capacity to string out stars like pearls on a thread, His ability to create things that we have no idea how to fathom, that sort of God, and here's where your mind gets boggled, is willing to come in very close and explain himself to you. That's what boggled the mind of Moses three and a half thousand years ago. Fast forward one and a half thousand years ago to the time of the New Testament. Come with me, if you will, to John's Gospel. The first few verses of John's Gospel. So we're in the New Testament now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And let me just spend a few minutes talking about what John says in comparison or in relation to what Moses said. Now you remember what it was that stunned Moses. What people is there, what nation is there that has a God who will come in so close and explain what he wants. He's not a dumb rock idol. He speaks to us. 
and he explains his mind and his will for us. Well, now, come with me to John chapter 1, and beginning at verse 14, because we're actually treading the same waters that Moses trod. The word, the logos, the, the original Christ, before he became incarnate, before he became Jesus, before he was born to Mary, the Word, that was his name then, became flesh. He became a baby, born to Mary, conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, and he dwelt among us. He came right in very close. This is God we're talking about. The Word, part of the Trinity as we would describe it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. That was John the Baptist saying that even though Jesus Christ, this Jesus man, even though he was born six months after John the Baptist was, John is saying, no, 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 no. don't let that fool you. He's no way is he my junior. No way is he younger than me in the way that really counts. He was there long before. He was there long before any of us were. He came before me. And from his fullness we've all received, writes John, grace upon grace. Now this is really just God doing the same thing again. Because his, his moving in close to the people of Israel, his moving in close to the children of the first generation out of Egypt, his moving in close through his prophet Moses, that was an act of grace. That was all of grace. He was being gracious to his people by handing them a constitution that will allow them to live in dignity in this new land that they're about to take. They could live with dignity, they could live lives of righteousness, they could live lives of glory under God's hand of blessing in the new land. That's a gracious thing to do. He could have just stood off afar and let them make it up for themselves. But we all know if that had been us, we'd have messed it up. Anytime man starts to regulate behaviors, it gets more complicated every day. But when God regulates behavior, things become simple. He allows things to just follow His will, follow His lead, follow His tendencies, and it will always be simple. Use His priorities, use His values, use His wisdom, and life smooths out. Not so with human government, I have to say it. But with divine government, it's a very simple because your priorities are straight, your values are set, and your behavior follows along. So, the Word became flesh. 
This is he of whom I said, says John the Baptist, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Here we go. For the law was given through Moses. That was the first stage of the plan. The first great revelation of God's will to his people. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, no one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, his Son, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has explained God the Father to us. He has been the walking, talking, breathing, living explanation of God on earth. And the men who followed him, the men who went with him, the men who ate supper with him, the men who laughed with him and wept with him, they wrote down the account of his life on earth and then went on to explain his life on earth for us in the letters to the churches so that we might know him intimately, the walking, talking explanation of God the Father. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to guess. We don't have to imagine what God wants because Jesus Christ came to explain it all. He came to make God's will known. So, this idea that God draws in close, it's not just an Old Testament idea that struck Moses. It's also a New Testament idea that includes the idea that Jesus Christ is God on earth and he came to explain. Anytime you see somebody, a character, walking up to Jesus and asking a question, it might have been a trick question sometimes from the other side or it might have been a genuine question, you're getting the very answer of God. You're getting God's holy answer on the lips of his son Jesus, because he came to explain God's will and God's ways to humankind. What a joy that is. See, where we've come from is not knowing how to please a dumb rock or a tree trunk, to having intimate understanding of what it is that God would have do with our lives. And even when Jesus left the scene, even after the ascension. Remember, he said, I won't leave you alone. I'm sending one after me who is the comforter who will go with you, the Holy Spirit. And it's there that we make our contact with God's explanation. So if you find yourself, and this has happened to me once in a while, it's, it's not that ministers are immune from thinking like this. If you find yourself thinking that God's a bit far off, that God seems to be a bit distant recently, it's time for a gut check because probably it's not God that's moved. It's probably you who's moved. And I'll tell you one of the greatest symptoms in my life of when I know that's happening is I neglect to read this thing on a routine basis, on a regular basis. It sort of loses its flavor for me for a little while. And I realize that, 
And I say to myself, Terry, you and God, you're not quite as close together as you like to be. You need to get back to His side. It's not that you're calling Him back to you. God isn't a puppy that you whistle for and He runs and slobbers at you. God is still there. He's always been right there. Your task is to move in close to Him again. He never goes. He never disappears. You remember David said it. Uh, Psalm 139. I'll go there. It's worth it. You don't have to turn there. I'll go there. Psalm 139. Verses 8 to 12. I love this passage. David is saying, in terms of this capacity of God to be close, he says, if I ascend to heaven, <laughs> oh, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, if I sleep in the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. Even if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. The light about me will be night. Even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You can't go anywhere to hide from God. And that's not a scary thing. That's a great comfort. Because more often than not, we need Him. We need Him desperately, day to day, to get through this life. So we don't have to ask for God to be there. He is there already. But we can move in closer to Him. And it's not us, or it's not God who's moved when we sense that He's distant. His constitution for us, as Christians abroad in the world, is not exactly this constitution that was given to the Jews as they approached Canaan. That phase of God's plan has been passed and satisfied on the cross. His constitution, Christ's constitution, His way for us, if you picked it up in the John passage, is that of grace and truth. That's what Christ communicates to us. If you want to boil God's will down into a, a, a nutshell concentration, He wants grace and truth out of us. Prophet Micah expressed God's will for us in very similar terms. Uh, what is it that is required of you, O man? Do justice. Choose kindness. Walk humbly. That's grace and truth. That's Christian talk, but from a prophet 700 years before Christ. God's ideas for mankind are very consistent. He's the God who moves in and explains Himself for our benefit. He's the God who moves in and gives us the capacity to regulate our lives into dignity and righteousness 
and a sense of worship in everything we do. Grace and truth. By grace, we're saved. Ephesians chapter 2. By grace, we are chosen. Romans chapter 11. By grace, we are strengthened for this life. Hebrews chapter 13. And by grace, we are sealed, guaranteed, vouchsafed for the life to come. Ephesians 1. It's all of grace. And it's all true. It's the Word of God. God wants to move in close to your life. He wants to form a relationship with you that allows you to live a life of calm dignity, quiet righteousness, humble justice. Do what's right. Do what's fair. Do what's kind and merciful. And do it in a way that makes God look good. Not yourself. Otherwise you run the risk of setting yourself up as an idol. And we don't want to go that way. Pray with me, please. Our Father and our God. It boggled Moses' mind. It boggled John's mind. And it boggles my mind to think that you, the great God of the universe, the wonderful Almighty Father, loves us enough and cares enough to step in close into our lives, to counsel us through your Spirit, to teach us through your Son, to guide us by your will and your ways. Father, what a privilege, what a joy. What an exciting life you give us as we live it out and work it out and walk it out under your hand of blessing. Amen.